As Pastor Mark said, my name is Austin Wellhausen. Um, I'm studying to be a pastor at Concordia Seminary St. Louis. I just finished my first year, so I'm going to start my second year next year. Um, yeah, I also get married in three weeks, which is exciting for a lot of reasons. It's also exciting because I think my fiance planned like 95% of our wedding on her own, uh, so it's going to be a big surprise to me, so uh, that'll be fun. Um, yeah, so basically, I decided I wanted to be a pastor when I was about 17 years old. And when I told my friends that, they brought up two things that pastors have to do that are generally uncomfortable. Uh, the first one is what I'm doing or what I'm trying to do right now, and that's preaching. My friend said, Austin, you're going to have to get up on a weekly basis and talk in front of a bunch of people about God and just other things that aren't so easy to talk about. All right? And the second one is sex talks. My friend said, Austin, you're going to have to give sex talks to high school youth groups and engaged couples, and that's a pretty uncomfortable, awkward thing. Now, granted, my friends told me that I was awkward, so that one might come a little more natural to me. Um, so I have great friends, as you can tell. But uh, preaching and sex talks, two uncomfortable things, and well, naturally, I'm going to try to do them both today. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to need some prayer if I'm going to try to tackle this. So would you guys please pray with me? Oh, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we've been in the middle of this tough question series where you guys have been submitting questions to Pastor Steve and Pastor Mark, and they've been answering them. So the questions brought before me in preparation for this week's message are as followed. Uh, the first, there's two questions. The first one is, why should I wait until marriage to have sex? All right, and the second one is, I have watched cohabitation become not the exception, but the norm. Help me understand where my role as a Christian is to stem tide of diminishing honor of marriage. These are two very good questions, and as a young 20-year-old, these are questions that I've thought a lot about as well, and I've had discussions with other young 20-year-olds about. Now, these questions may sound different at first, One's pretty blatantly, you know, talking about sex and intimacy, and the other one's kind of like, you know, relationships and living together. But really, these are kind of getting, getting around the same basic idea. And that is, what is a gospel, what is a Christian-focused picture of intimacy? All right? And in order to understand intimacy, we also need to understand marriage. Now, obviously, the, the Christian worldview of marriage has just been under serious attack the past 50 years or so. So likely many non-Christians and probably some Christians think the Bible has a very pessimistic view towards sex and intimacy. And anybody who believes that, you should probably pick up a Bible and start reading because that's, that can be farther from the truth. Some of you guys may know of the Old Testament book, Song of Solomon. Well, Song of Solomon is completely about a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. And when Solomon, Solomon first wrote this book in Hebrew, and a lot of the 
kind of graphic, erotic language gets censored when it's translated into English. So I don't know if you guys know who E.L. James is. She's the author of the Fifty Shades of Grey uh, trilogy. And maybe if you know who she is, you just want to keep that a secret. But um, if E.L. James were to read Song of Solomon in the original Hebrew and understand it, I mean, that would make her blush. All right, just very graphic, very open language. And the Bible has such a positive, high view of sex and intimacy because it views it through the eyes of God. Uh, James chapter 1, verse 17, says that every good and perfect gift is from above. And intimacy is also one of these gifts. Now, the problem with it is that we as human beings are sinful. So a lot of times our thoughts and our actions associated with sex and intimacy, that's what's wrong with it. Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, chastity is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it is now, is wrong. I think it is the instinct that has gone wrong. All right, so in order to really understand what Christians confess about intimacy and marriage, we're going to look at the Bible, right? I think that's a pretty good place to start. And we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. This is a very loaded section. We could spend a whole year talking about the passage on wives and husbands, but uh, for today, we're going to focus specifically on just a few verses. And we're going to start at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Paul says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So we're going to look at three things from this passage and see if we can get a better understanding of marriage and intimacy as God intended it. The first one is the first thing Paul says. Paul says, a man will leave his father and his mother. So in ancient traditional cultures, like the one Paul's writing to in Ephesians, a child's whole livelihood, their identity, was based on their parents. When Jesus himself returns to his hometown in the Gospels, how is he referred to? He's referred to as the son of a carpenter. He's referred to by his dad's livelihood. So Paul's saying marriage is literally leaving your old identity behind and starting a brand new one with someone else. We live in a very free and independent culture, so we often don't grasp the magnitude of what Paul is saying. Marriage is literally leaving your old identity and forming a brand new one. All right, so that's our first point. The second point is gets more on topic into uh, the physical intimacy of this week's focus. Paul says that a man shall unite to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So obviously, yeah, Paul's, you know, he's talking about sex and intimacy, but he's also talking about something much deeper. But we're going to begin, we're going to talk about a Christian definition of sex. My favorite Christian author is a guy by the name of Timothy Keller. He's a pastor in New York, just a really bright, really smart dude, and he wrote a book with his wife called The Meaning of Marriage. And in that book, this is how Timothy Keller defines sex. Sex is God's appointed way to say to someone else, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. 
And what is the only way that statement can truly be made? Through God's eyes, the only way that statement can be made is through a legally binding marriage. In the original Greek, the word for a man shall unite, that word for unite, some translations use hold fast, that word is proskolao. And what that word means in the Greek is to make a binding covenant or a binding contract with somebody. So a lot of times today we hear people say like, I don't need a piece of paper to define my love. My love is stronger than anything the church or the state can say about it. And I guess how Christians, we respond to that is, okay, you say that, but where's your evidence? You see, as the way God intended it, the foundation of marital love is not feelings. It's a very important part of it. Feelings and emotions are maybe, you know, it's driving force, it starts it off. But at the foundation of marriage is a promise. That's the glue that holds it together. It's the promise that someone makes before God and before their spouse that they're going to commit themselves permanently, completely, and exclusively to that person. It's not a promise of receiving. It's a promise of giving yourself to someone else. So in God's eyes, what is someone really saying when they choose to have sex before marriage? What they're saying is, I want to take everything I can take from you without fully giving myself to you. And then with living together, a lot of people I've talked to that have done this or are doing this, it's, you know, just a way to test the waters, right? We got, we got to see if we're compatible. And if they were to really look down, I think there's very selfish intentions behind that. Because what people are really trying to do is trying to find any imperfection in that person that they deem is just too much for them to handle, too much for them to commit themselves to them. They're not asking what they're giving this person. They're trying to see if this person fits their expectations. So if John Doe moves in with Mary and he finds out that Mary consistently has dry elbows and bad morning breath, John isn't like that. John can just get up and leave, right? There's no promise. There's no glue that's holding John to that relationship. So we've talked about marriage starting a new identity. It's founded on a promise. But there's one more thing we want to look at. And that's what Paul says in verse 32. Paul says, this is a profound mystery. He's talking about marriage. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So it's very easy to see that our views on sex and intimacy as a culture by and large are pretty far from where God wants them to be. There was an American author by the name of Ernest Becker, and in the 1970s, Ernest Becker wrote something called The Romantic Solution. And what Becker noticed was, and this is in the 70s, the amount of people that believed and trusted in God was on a sharp decline. So what people used to look for in God, what they, that kind of love they used to look for, that meaning and identity in God, they were now placing in their romance and their sex lives. And there are so many fundamental problems with this. I guess the first is, one, people are looking for something in a human being that they can only find in God. And two, <clears throat> this puts an unsurmountable amount of pressure on someone else that they can never satisfy. <clears throat> Nobody's looking at what they're providing 
someone else, they're completely looking at what they give to them. People want to find somebody that's just perfect with zero flaws, zero problems, that will at the same time love them and just forgive all their faults and problems. What's the solution to all this? How do we as Christians respond? Well, Paul says something in the first two verses of Ephesians chapter 5, and honestly, that whole passage on marriage should be read in light of these first two verses. Paul says, starting at verse 1, Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly love children, and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, the only way our longing for love and identity and meaning in life will ever be completed is if we realize the power of Jesus and the power of the gospel. Everything that Paul says a perfect spouse should do to one another, Jesus has already done for all of us. Paul says marriage is about leaving an old identity behind and starting a brand new one. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus left his father from eternity, came down to earth, and completely changed his identity. He became a human being because he loved us. Paul says that marriage is founded on a promise. Well, Jesus promised he would come to earth, he would die for us, and he would raise from the dead. And with that, he promises eternal life. Our whole views on marriage and relationships in general will be wrong and selfish and distorted unless we realize the love that Christ has given us in the gospel. And the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, because of Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. We're looking for love in all the wrong places when we just need to look at the cross. And how do we respond to this love? We don't love asking what we're going to get. We love asking what we're going to give. We only love looking to serve and not to be served. Amen.